a good title for what we're talking about is the work that justifies faith. The work that justifies the faith that justifies. So if you go online, it should say the work that justifies faith. What I want to make sure of is that today you feel a bit of the pathos about the validation of the faith, the work that justifies the claim that I have saving faith. And I've argued from week to week, the worst thing you can do, apart from misleading someone as to what it takes to become a Christian, to be reconciled with God, it would be a horrific thing if you misrepresented the way of salvation. And someone missed the opportunity to hear the truth that saves because you clouded that truth in ways that misrepresented it. I think the only thing worse than that, and that's bad, is to mislead or misunderstand yourself what it takes to be saved. That is, you think you're saved, and in fact you are not. You're a claimer of saving faith, but you do not possess saving faith. And we've been talking about the faith that saves, the work that justifies faith, the claim of it. Genesis chapter 15, our subject today, we're going to talk about one of the two illustrations James gives to speak to the characteristics of the work that justifies the claim of faith. And one of those characters, the male character, the well-known exalted father of the Jewish people is Abraham. And here he is called Abram because he has yet to be transitioned into the status of the father of many nations. But here's verse 1, chapter 15, the backstory by way of inspired revelation to the text of Scripture we will unpack this morning. Chapter 15, the book of Genesis, the book of Origins. After these things, so Abram has been called of God out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's traveled with his father and his, his brother, and now he is moving into the realm where he is going to be given a land, the land of promise. Chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. Exalted Father, I am a shield to you. And I think that's a reference to the deliverance God gave against the enemies who carted off Lot. And Abram took his 300 men and rescued Lot, and and God protected him. And they won a mammoth victory. One man in his household of mercenaries took and was, was victorious over Several kings. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? I have no children. So whatever you give me, I've got nobody to give it to. Verse 3, and Abram said, since you have given, have, been, have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, the, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. So this guy who was this boy who was born into your house is not going to be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside, that's God, took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. Can you imagine that? I've got no children, I'm going to give you a great reward No, you're going to have an inheritor, and he's going to come from your own loins. Hey, let's walk outside. This is not Los Angeles with all of the ambient light that handicaps you from seeing the stars of the heavens, and if you've ever found your way to a natural environment where you could look up, it's stunning the volume 
of heavenly bodies that aren't typically in view when you live in a city like ours. Let's go outside. Take a look up. See that? That's how many descendants you're going to have. Watch verse 6. Then he, that's a reference to Abram, he believed in Yahweh. And he, a reference to Yahweh, reckoned it to him as righteousness. The word reckon means to assign. It means to declare. It's a legal term. You're righteous. What did Abram do to be righteous? He believed the promise of God. Key word, promise of God. Key word, promise. What did he do? He believed God for the fulfillment of that promise. And the belief in the fulfillment of that promise, trusting God, was the means, the necessary ingredient to be reckoned by God as righteous, justified. Turn over, if you would please, to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be back to Genesis because I want you to feel the plot thicken. And I know I touched on this, but I, I want you to feel the flavor of it because chapter 15 is when Abram is reckoned or declared to be righteous. He's justified by faith. Chapter 22, which is where we're headed back to today in Genesis is where he, in the test of his faith, offers Isaac in obedience to God. The work that justifies the faith that justifies. Romans chapter 4, the end of verse 26, or excuse me, let's look at chapter 3. Can't help but read this part. God has offered a satisfaction for our sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, the demonstration, I say, chapter 3, of his righteousness, God's at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God, just, because he doesn't overlook sin, he satisfies and executes justice on sin. For God to be just, sin has to be taken care of. It has to be satisfied by way of justice. And God, in His justice, satisfied our sin in the person and work of His Son. And that Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, bore in His body the full justice that was required to reconcile us with God. He was just because execution of justice did occur on and through and to his son on the cross of Calvary. So God would be just, and he would be able to be the justifier, that's the make you righteous, of the one who has what? Say it out loud for me. Faith in whom? Jesus. It's not faith in my good works. It's not faith in the church I attend. It's not faith in my pedigree and my family. It is an exclusive faith and trust in a person. Jesus Christ, who is the sin bearer, the satisfier, the propitiation, the one who endured in his body the full wrath and justice of God. And I like to say this, and hopefully somewhere along the line it'll stick, but Jesus did in the hours on the cross what Eternity in hell cannot do. You do not satisfy justice in hell. You never get out of hell. Jesus on the cross satisfied the justice of God. And by believing in His work of substitution, His atoning work on my behalf, believing in Jesus, I become justified. So God is just, payment is paid. I'm just because I believe in the work of Jesus Christ, which is satisfying my sin debt and the imputing or the reckoning to me of a righteousness not my own. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Verse 1, chapter 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? So Paul is going to use Abraham as an example of justification by faith in Jesus apart from the works of the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Here's a key verse. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, same idea as reckoned, to him as what? Righteousness. What made Abraham righteous? His faith in the promise of God, not his work. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if it was work that got you there, you would be partially responsible for the effect granted to you. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, do you see that? Not working, but believes in him capital H, who justifies the ungodly, that's God, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? In other words, is it for the Jew, those who have followed the requirement of God to be circumcised as a covenant expression of their relationship with God? Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. Because here's the implied argument. The reason God reckoned Abraham to be righteous as he obeyed the requirement to be circumcised. And what Paul's saying, no, no. He was credited with righteousness before he was circumcised. There was no circumcision in chapter 15. Circumcision occurred later in Genesis. When God said to Abram, you and everybody in your household, including your 13-year-old son Ishmael, you shall be circumcised as a covenant expression of my promise to you in your relationship with me. But righteousness for Abraham came before he was circumcised. So you can't argue that circumcision was some kind of work that was imputed or recognized and therefore made Abraham righteous. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who do what? Say it out loud. Who believe. Without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to to them. How? By faith. Verse 13, for the promise of Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of what? Faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. For, there, for where there is no law, there's also no violation. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with, say this word out loud, grace. You know what grace is? Unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. If I deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. Righteousness comes according to verse 16 by faith and it's the result of grace so that the promise will be what? Guaranteed. Guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. In other words, Jew and Gentile who believe, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. So Abraham's faith was in who? God. God's promise, God's work. 
Not Abraham's work, God's work. What was God's promise? I'm going to give you as many as these as your descendants. He believed even God, verse 17, and this is going to be relevant, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So this is not a casual conviction about God. This is a big conviction about God and His capacity to fulfill promises. Take a look at that. I created that, and I'm going to also, out of your loins, create a nation, and you're going to be the father of many nations, and through your seed, all of the earth will be blessed. It's not Eleazar of Damascus. It's your loins. It's your son. I promise. Abraham believed the God who promised because he knew him to be the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 18, let's amp it up. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be without becoming weak in faith. So I want you to notice, in hope against hope, he believed. Why did he have a problem believing? Well, number one, he's old and he doesn't have any descendants. And when he does have descendants, there are going to be that many. So I'm an old man, I've got that promise to me, and it's in hope against hope because from a natural vantage point, there is no way. Which is what verse 19 says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Guess what he wasn't? In denial about reality. Because the focus of faith is not on my reality. The focus of my faith is about the promise of God who rules over reality. He can raise the dead. He can do that. He can do anything. He didn't grow weak through faith looking at the realities of his life. He grew strong. Notice one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 20. Yet with respect to what? The promise of God. Not the age of his body or the deadness of his wife's womb. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong, and I prefer the preposition through faith, in the sphere of faith, but also growing strong through the exercise of his faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured. Do you see that? Fully assured that what God had done, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now look at verse 22. I believe you can. I don't care what my circumstances are. Verse 22. The consequence then is, therefore, do you see that? The result of the faith that believes God, not your circumstances. The faith that believes God despite your inability. That's the faith, verse 22, it was also credited to him as what? Righteousness. Now watch verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. Well, really? Whose sake then would it be written for? But for our sake also to whom it will be credited. As those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of what? Our justification. Now listen, Abram, who became Abraham, believed God's promise. And it was written of him that his righteousness was rooted in his belief in God's promise. And that declaration, which is the foundation for our lesson this morning, is beneficial to us who also believe in a promise. The promise of 
Jesus enduring our transgressions, Jesus satisfying a debt we couldn't pay, Jesus validating that satisfaction was accepted by coming alive from the dead. Our justification is rooted in confidence in the promise that all who believe in Him enjoy righteousness from God and forgiveness from God. His work, His resurrection, guaranteeing that work was satisfactory. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 for a little more color before we get to James. Because what we read in James last week was that Abraham was justified by his works, which is confusing, which is why Martin Luther said this is a right strawy epistle, meaning it's, it's got, not got weight and substance. You can't trust it. It's, it's hollow. It's light. It doesn't mirror, mirror or merit inspiration. Why? Because of confusion. And that confusion turns on this simple understanding that the word justify is defined lexically in one of two ways, dictionary. Number one, to declare righteous, which is what we've been talking about. Abraham declared righteous by faith. And to show as righteous, to demonstrate righteousness, to validate it. I want to use the second definition of that word, validation of Jesus Christ, so you can feel the flavor of it because it connects to the end of chapter 4. Verse 14, chapter 3, 1 Timothy. Paul writing, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. In other words, behavior commensurate with the responsibility of the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I want you to know how to act, because how you act validates the truth. Verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, who would that be? Jesus, incarnated God the Son Revealed in the flesh, John 1, now watch this word, was vindicated. Do you see that? Vindicated, that's the word justified. It's the same word we're going to see in James chapter 2. It's the word that we saw in Romans chapter 4. Justification, it's used in the second sense, not to declare righteous, but to be demonstrated as righteous, or in this case, demonstrated, verse 16, was vindicated, validated in the Spirit. You could say as a result or by the Spirit. He was validated because he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So Jesus' identity, Son of God revealed in the flesh, satisfying the sin debt for humanity as the Son of Man, His claim of salvation and substitution, his claim of propitiation and satisfaction, his claim that whoever believes on me shall be saved, that claim is validated by his resurrection. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. The resurrection validates the claim. It justifies it. Chapter 1, the book of Romans, and I know we're in a lot of different passages. Good news is you brought your Bible, and that's what I asked Carl Hargrove today. I said, are you teaching? He said, yes. I said, are you going to use the Bible? He said, yes. (laughs) And I complimented him on that commitment. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, Paul, a slave of Christ, slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's talk about the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel involves whom? His son, verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now watch verse 4, who was declared, validated, confirmed, 
as the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. According to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. How was Jesus Christ validated? How was He vindicated in His claims as the means of the gospel? By His resurrection. It justified the claim. In real time, the empty tomb, the resurrected Christ, is validation that the claim is legitimate. It's proof. Justification is both the declaration of righteousness and it's the validation of righteousness. Go back with me now to James chapter 2 and our text for today. You say, Harry, why are you taking such time? Because if you mess this up, you mess it up. You mess it up for yourself, and you mess it up for anybody who gets to hear the gospel that saves from you. Because there are two things you need to leave here today with, or you need to leave the study of James with. The faith that saves, the gospel that saves, the grace that saves, is by faith alone in the promises of God through Jesus Christ. And the validation of the faith that saves works. It's proven. Or it's not saving faith. It's empty claims. So you can talk all you want. You can be a student at the Master's University. You can be a member of Grace Community Church. You can go through your membership interview. You can write it down and say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Son of Man. I believe He died in my stead. I've placed my faith and trust in Him. You can make all those claims. But if those claims are not validated in real life, those claims are empty. They are useless. Because the faith that saves is in faith alone in the promise of God, but it's validated because it's never alone. James chapter 2, verse 21. After verse 20, let's read verse 20, setting us up. But you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is what? Useless. You know why? It's not saving faith. It's just words. Or it's just as the demons have, good theology. Because the work that justifies faith is demonstrated in real life. Uh, Dr. MacArthur on Friday was talking about John Piper's new book called What is Saving Faith? And one of the key evidences that Piper points out is saving faith is validated first and most by love. Love is the acid test of saving faith, which would be easy for Harry to agree with based on James chapter 2. Because he said, if you say you have faith and somebody's in need and you say words, be warm and be filled, but you don't practically engage to meet those needs, you don't have faith and you're not expressing what? Love. Because the work that justifies faith is love toward people. And the faith that saves and the work that justifies it is not just validated by your for people in the ways that you practically meet needs, but the way you love God because of who God is. You don't just say our God is one. You treat Him as He deserves and desires. You love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're committed to loving Him because the faith that works... Saving faith is justified by, here's a key statement, you ought to note this. Saving faith is justified by observable love for people in God. Did you hear the word observable? That's what we have considered. And then verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works, observable evidence, loving people, loving God, it's useless. 
Now he comes to these two examples that I've asked you now for a couple of weeks to consider. A man and a woman. A well-known, exalted man and a well-known, not-so-respected woman. We're going to look at the exalted man. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? To which you would answer when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So if I said, was Abraham justified by works, what would you say? Well, yes and no. You would say yes, because the work that he did in offering his son validated his faith. It justified the claim. But you would also say, no, that work of Isaac on the altar, which justified the claim, didn't justify him before God. Because faith is what justified him before God. Abraham believed God and was declared or reckoned or considered or credited to be righteous. He's already justified. He was declared righteous. Now he's being shown to be righteous. The claim is being validated. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, verse 22, that faith was working with his works. It was active. And as a result of the works, faith was what? Perfected, matured. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Seen verse 23 before? Well, hold it, Harry. I thought he was justified by believing alone. Yes, he was. When was that confirmed? When he took his only son and undeniably validated his belief in God's promise, the one who could raise the dead, the one who could do anything he wished to do, when he offered his son on the altar of sacrifice, when he was willing and raised his hand, the knife, he was confirming, he was validating, he was proving what the Scripture said about him. It was fulfilled in the sense that it was confirmed. And the net effect, he was called the friend of God. So I want to take this apart a little bit today and give you some validating evidences of saving faith, the work that justifies faith as revealed in Abraham. And here is one of the undeniable, you can write it down, you can bank on it, the work that justifies your claim is an Abraham-type faith. And what kind of faith is it? Listen, it's a faith that puts God first. And it's a faith that believes God no matter what. Real faith is proven when you obey and trust God when you are severely tested. Real faith is validated by obeying God and putting God ahead of any relationship. This is a proof of saving faith. It was validated. When was it validated? when it was on display. Turn over with me, if you would, back to Genesis 22, so we can enter into the pathos of this kind of faith in action. So the promise is made. Years go by. Sarai decides that she's not the woman who's going to bear the son, so she offers her handmaid, Hagar, to Abram, to be the means of fulfilling the promise. Hagar has a son. His name is Ishmael. Ishmael, at the end of chapter 16, Hagar, verse 15 of chapter 16, bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now watch verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So how old is he going to be when his son Isaac is born, the son of the promise? A hundred. So 
time is going to go by, which it does, verse chapter 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, Lord, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant, God's covenant, is with you, Abram, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, the father of many nations. How many sons does he have? One. He's 86, then he's 99. His son is 13, his son's going to be circumcised. And then in chapter 21, the fulfillment of the promise occurs. Verse 1, the Lord God took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. He called him Isaac. Chapter 22, this only son of his wife, Sarah. Verse, 20, verse 1, chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. So it's a test. And Abraham said to him, and said to Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham said back, here I am. Verse 2, and he said, this is God, take your, now take your son, your only son, point of emphasis, whom you love. So we got my only son, the son whom you love, the one whose name is Isaac, not Ishmael. Go to the land of Moriah, because Ishmael and his mother Hagar had been sent out. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. You take your son, your only boy. The other son has been dispatched. The one whom you love, you take that son, probably a teenager. You take him to the land of Moriah. You offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, so he's three days thinking about this. He's in a journey. He's got his son. He's got these servants. And he raised his eyes, verse 4, and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to the young men, you stay here with the donkey. I and the land will go from over there and we will worship and return to you, which is a statement of faith. I want you to notice the word worship, and we're coming back. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and took on in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Father, son, only son, love son. We're going to take a walk, and at the end of that walk, I'm going to sacrifice you as an act of worship. God told me. So Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac. The two walked together. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. Imagine the penetrating flavor of that statement. Your son. Hey, dad. Here I am, my son. And he said, behold. And look, we've got fire. We've got wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I know what we're taking a walk to do. I see some of the essential necessary components. What I don't see is the central component. The lamb for sacrifice. Verse 8 Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Do you see that? Still walking, still believing. We're going to worship. We're going to come back. 
We're walking. God's going to cover. He's going to take care of this. Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. Now imagine you're building it. You're putting it together. He's standing over there. And then after you get done building it in obedience to God, you're going to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and you're going to bind that son to the altar. Verse 9, he bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now pause. You've got to use your sanctified imagination and imagine what is going on. This is not a game. This is a test. What is the test? Do you trust me? And will you obey me over your most beloved son? Will you pick me over him? Will you trust me? Because I've made promises to you. Verse 10, so Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I'll tell you what that is. That's a work that justifies belief. That's a, I choose God over my son faith. That's I choose God over anybody faith. That's a, I choose to trust God despite the reality I'm living faith. He took, stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, I got to believe it was loud. And he said, here I am. And he said, the voice from heaven, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him for now. Watch this. Now I know that you fear God, you regard me, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son, type of Christ. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now watch verse 15, the angel Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now watch this, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. I'm going to fulfill my promise because the faith that I credited to you as righteousness is on undeniable display. You have what attracts my blessing and the fulfillment of my promise. It's validated. Your work justifies the claim of faith that justifies. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, verse 17. I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. So lots of them. Victory, blessing, bounty. Verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now watch this. Because you have done what? You've obeyed my voice. Because true saving faith has components that justify the fact that it's the faith that saves. One of those is, I love you more than I love anyone else. Two, I will obey you no matter what you ask. Obedience validates saving faith. Obedience is a work that justifies your faith, your claim of it. Loving obedience justifies your faith. Saving faith works. It is a put God first and believe God no matter what faith. Real faith is proven when you obey and trust God when you're severely tested. Real faith is validated by obeying God and putting God ahead of any relationship. Now listen, with that big background canvas, listen to these words of Jesus. 
Matthew 10, he who loves father or mother, verse 37, more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If my son or daughter, if my precious loved one is a priority over Jesus... If it's them first, not Jesus first, Jesus would say, that's not worthy of me. Because the work that justifies the claim of faith is Jesus first, God first faith. That's how you know it's real. Real faith is manifested in first love for God. Otherwise, the claim is empty. The claim is suspect. Real faith is manifest and fulfilled in first love, affection and obedience for Christ. And faithful and faith-filled obedience not only justifies your faith, its claims, but it results, listen to this, in a real intimate friendship with God. Because real faith is manifested in a friendship with God relationship. John 15, 12, Jesus to the disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What would that be? Obedience. Abraham is the friend of God. I mean, that's what James said. He was called the friend of God. Well, what does the friend of God do to justify that appellation, that elevated label? He obeys God. Because the friends of God, you are my friends, Jesus said, verse 14, John 15, if you do what I command you. And I want to add in parenthesis, no matter what or with regard to whom. You're my friends if you obey me. You're my friends if you love me and obey me. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. I've called you friends. This is not about whether you're my friend. This is about me saying you're my friend. The phrase friend of God, God is a, is a noun, it's a genitive. Friend of God. God is the noun, it's a genitive. It can be understood in two ways. An objective genitive, whereby God is the object. Abraham looks at God, the object, and says, God's my friend. Abraham was willing to offer his son because God was his friend. Because that's what friends do. They're willing to love the one that they're in relationship with to the point of sacrifice and suffering. You could take it that way. There's another way to take it. Where God is the subject. This is not Abraham saying, God, he's my friend, but God saying as the subject, Abraham is my friend. Listen to, I'll give you an example. If I tell you, John MacArthur is my friend. Well, that's good. But I would be in a group of a lot of people who might say, John MacArthur is my friend. But it's a whole different thing if John MacArthur says, Harry's my friend. One is good. Guess what the other one is? Way better. (laughs) It's one thing to say, God's my friend. It's another thing for God to say, Abraham, he's my friend. Abraham was the friend of God because God called him his friend. Listen to 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. Are you not our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever? Listen to Isaiah 41, 8. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham. This is God talking. 
the seed of Abraham, my friend. Listen, Abraham was the friend of God because saving faith manifests itself by choosing to elevate and serve with confidence and trust the one you love with ways of serving them according to what is best from their place of perspective and purpose. You trust them. You honor them with faith and obedience. God honored Abraham because he had a saving faith that loved and obeyed even when it was difficult and hard. Let me tell you about the friendship of God that you need to consider as it relates to your faith? Is it the kind of friendship that you could say, I have confidence in him. I make choices that reflect my faith in him. I love him and I follow him in faith. He's my friend. And can you say, And I'm his friend. He has confidence in me. He can trust me to do what friends do. To be the kind of friend who expresses trust and intimacy. Because friendship involves mutual confidence and trust which results, listen to me, in in intimacy. This is Genesis 18. This is before the destruction of Sodom. This is the Lord saying, Shall I hide this thing from Abraham, my friend? I'm about to do something world-changing, community-impacting, and there's no chance, as a friend, I'm not going to disclose what I'm about to do to my friend. Because saving faith is not only I will put God first, even if it's hard, over everything else. I'll trust Him no matter what. But I have an intimacy with God that I enjoy fellowship with Him where He's disclosing Himself to me and I am sharing my heart with Him. You know what friendship is? Intimate. I was thinking of 1 John And the declaration of 1 John chapter 14, where Jesus says, He who has my commandments, verse 21, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And then this pithy statement, and I will disclose myself to him. The word disclose means to declare plainly, to inform, to communicate, to express intimately. So listen to what Jesus says. If you love me, you'll know my commandments and you'll obey my commandments. You'll act like a friend in whom I will have confidence. And as a consequence of my confidence in you to love me and obey me, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to be intimate with you. I'm going to disclose myself to you. Here's a question that needs to be asked. Saving faith is, I trust you. And I manifest that trust in the way I live toward you. It's not just lip service. It's real time with real evidences. Real and saving faith is proven faith. It's proven by a Jesus first priority and a real and radical obedience rooted in a high view of God, His promise, and His power. And this faith, that kind of saving faith which works, results in a with God intimacy because of this Jesus first, and I will obey you, God, no matter what priority. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll wrap up with just a couple of more passages. Actually, probably one looking at the clock. Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11 is about what subject? Faith. Begins with faith. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance. That's the word confidence or substance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That's faith by way of definition. For by it, faith, the men of old gained approval. From whom? God. By faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. By the way, if you don't believe in creation by the Word of God, you're not exercising biblical faith. This is what verse 3 says. By faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered up a better sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up. End of verse 5, because he was pleasing to God. So his life was pleasing to God because he lived by faith. Because, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God, in reverence prepared an ark, and he became the heir at the end of verse 7 of righteousness, which is what? According to faith. Now look at verse 8. By faith whom our subject? Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Verse 11, or let's jump ahead rather to uh, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. So he's just rehearsing how much faith he was expressing. The son, the only son, the source of the promise. And Abraham, verse 19, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. I think we'll park right here and simply conclude with this statement. Why did Abraham do what he did? Because he had saving faith. And that saving faith was manifested in an I'll pick God over everybody else faith. I'll pick God no matter what faith. I'll believe God can raise my son from the dead if necessary faith. I believe in God. I trust God. And because I trust God like that, he calls me his friend. And I consider him my friend because he's trustworthy. And saving faith has intimacy. And it has a God-focused priority, even when it's severely tested. So here's the bottom line as you leave Cornerstone today. Is there any evidence of that kind of faith in your life where I pick him over every other human competitor, no matter how valuable they are to me? Secondly, does that kind of claim validate itself in knowing what he has prescribed and the doing of it? And does that faith which loves and obeys enjoy a kind of personal intimacy whereby I can say, I trust him. I have a relationship with him. He talks to me. And I, as a friend, can talk to him. Saving faith invites you into an intimacy with God that ought to be seen in the way you engage God. I will disclose myself to the one who has my commandments and does it. And saving faith knows it and does it and enjoys intimacy with the God who has prescribed it. Can you say amen to that? How do you get saved? Not by doing that. But because you're saved, your life is characterized by that. The next verse will encourage you because that isn't fully present at the beginning necessarily. It's faith that works, that grows your faith. Father, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the opportunity to examine your word. Thank you for the promise that guarantees our future. And I ask you, Lord, to help us to honestly take inventory to assess whether we possess the kind of work that justifies the claim that I have the faith 
that saves. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would bring conviction where it's needed and commitment where it's required. Lord, I ask that for us all in Jesus' name. Amen.